Hey, welcome back to Invisible Machines, a podcast produced in partnership with UX Magazine and OneReach.ai. Uh, this podcast was born out of a book called Age of Invisible Machines that I co-authored along with my co-host here, Rob Wilson. Rob is the founder and CEO of OneReach AI and has been working with Conversational AI for decades. And so it was, it was kind of funny. As we wrote the book, the irony wasn't lost on us that we were about to publish information about technology that is moving so, so quickly. And indeed, our book came out, I think, a few months before OpenAI released ChatGBT and blew the world's collective mind. So the core information in the book really doesn't change, but now we have this opportunity with the second edition coming out to revisit some of those ideas and add in some information about generative AI. Uh, and the exercise is kind of pointing us in the direction of a question that we're going to wrestle with a bit today. Will we still need books moving forward? Uh, you know, are books still a viable way to collect and present information in an era when people can just talk to machines, when you can feed a chat window a prompt, and seconds later get 50,000 words out the other side? Will we still need books as artifacts, as vehicles, uh, as things to put on our coffee table, as things to put on shelves, as things to dive into on a rainy afternoon. We want to know. And so we turned to Lou Rosenfeld, who is a legend in the realm of experience design. Uh, Lou is a, an information architect from way back in the day. He is also the founder of Rosenfeld Media, which has published many, many, many books about all aspects of experience design from many of the cutting edge practitioners out in the world. It was great getting to talk to Lou. We also delve into Moment Prisons, uh, a concept that he came up with. Uh, I think he published an article called Moment Prisons and How to Escape Them a number of years ago. Uh, and the idea is, you know, in the case of an information architect, maybe you have a small group of IAs uh, who identify as such and who are banding together to, you know, to pound the table and, and get attention paid to the things that they think are really important about technology. And then as more people start to join the fray and technology changes, the perception of what an information architect starts to shift. And then the moment prison thing kicks in. Like, do we hold on to this title because it gives us identity and unity? Or do we need to start thinking about ways to diversify our thinking around information architecture? That's uh, kind of an important question. And so we asked that one too, because, you know, right now, obviously technology is zooming all around us and getting stuck in a moment prison could be kind of a dangerous thing. So I don't know, Lou, what do you think? How do we get out of moment prisons? And will people still turn to books and authors in their time of need for both information and I suppose entertainment? Let's get into this conversation right now and see what Lou has to say. All right, Lou, well, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Um, Elias, our producer who you just met, he and I were having a discussion earlier um, he had sent some additional notes over for me to look at, and he said, uh, I'll let you go dig into that Lou Reed right now. And uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a nice little moment where I, uh, there was some, you know, some congruity between you and Lou Reed, I think. And so I decided- Another nice Jewish boy from Brooklyn. <laughs> there it is. There it is. And you're wearing a black t-shirt. I think Lou would approve of that. And uh, so, so I was listening to the song uh, Perfect Day while I was reading his notes. He put together some more notes about Moment Prisons, which, which also just came up uh, pre-recording here. Um, 
And I guess I was kind of wondering, like, what what's I'm, I'm sure there's just moment prisons galore popping up right now. And I thought maybe we could talk about some of the most egregious ones. And then, I mean, are we in a moment, too, where moment prisons are especially dangerous? And then third, you know, is the song Perfect Day actually about moment prisons? Because he's just <laughs> talking about a, a perfect day. And is he is he trying to hold on too tightly or is he letting go? Oh, probably. Probably. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess we could jump. Wow. We're jumping right into moment yeah, prisons. Let's, 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 <laughs> let's, yeah, let's just great. dive in. Well, first. all right. So, you know, like, uh, I'm an old fart, right? I've been in UX or equivalent thereof for 30 years, 35 years, whatever it's been. And, um, you know, I've just, I've been as guilty as anyone to, uh, of just being kind of, um, uh, like suck into, uh, identity like i am an information architect and uh, that makes it really like it's really important that we information architects all get together and be together and support each other and uh, it's new and scary and nobody really gets us and that's that is how a term like information architecture really takes off because it gives people not only some tools but an identity when they're, yeah. they're not understood medicine and for our I, imposter syndrome Oh, abs- well put, <laughs> well put. And uh, that imposter syndrome is true in a lot of places, right? I mean, the the content strategist, I just was at Confab recently, uh, the, con- the content strategy conference that Christina Halverson and Brain Traffic put on. And uh, here it's 2023, and I felt like it could have been an information architecture conference from 1999. It's a great conference, don't get me wrong, I love it. And I love the people, but there's the sense of being misunderstood and needing to rally around a term and an identity. Uh. And then I was at uh, Mind the Product in May, another great conference. And here it's, you know, all the designers think the product managers have all the power. Uh. And they're misunderstood. And they're feeling like, you know, you know, they don't have, they need that identity. So, um, you know, there, everyone feels misunderstood. Everyone needs community, and then they have success, uh-huh. and then they start doubling down on that identity when it's no longer all that useful. So I certainly saw that in the information architecture world. Uh, I've seen it in pretty much every. I hate to use this term tribe, but it is kind of tribal. How uh, so many of us go? Oh, thank goodness, I. I get it. Uh, and I'm being gotten uh, because we all we've come under this term, whether it, whatever it is. I mean, th- there are so many out there. Uh, maybe right now uh, another term might be product designer. Oh, thank uh-huh. God, I'm a product designer now. I'm I'm real. So, uh-huh. But uh, what about next year? Well, product design is blah 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 blah. No, I think product design is blah 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 blah. <laughs> and so then you start seeing that kind of bickering that yeah. starts to to snowball so uh in the um in the ux world we saw the ia kind of rolled split into what was called big ia little ia and big ia was really kind of what you know became what split off into the interaction design community <laughs> and little ia was people looking at search and taxonomy and, and navigation and things like that and you know what? I mean, if we tried to hold on to each other too long and it became bitter. 
Uh, because we were all fighting for a definition of something that yeah. its moment had passed. And that's a moment prison. Uh, it, it, beca- it starts off as a positive, and then because we hold on to it too tightly, for many emotional reasons, it becomes a negative. It becomes counterproductive. And it's not just the names of practices or roles. It's also metaphors. Minimum viable product. Uh-huh. Hurdle. <laughs> you, I mean, you name it, these things become damaging right. if we're not careful. And I mean, just to pick on Portal, you guys are probably old enough to remember it uh, oh, yeah. about the listeners. But I used to go and do uh, consulting with large organizations who would tell me, I'm a consultant, but they're telling me what they need, and that's a portal. And I'd say, well, what's a portal? Sputter, sputter, sputter. <laughs> yeah. And then what I would do is I'd say, listen, you know, we're going to have a conversation in the next day or two while I'm with you, and we're going to ban that word. Uh, and if anyone uses that word, throw a dollar on the table. If I use it, throw $10 on the table. Uh, and uh, it's interesting how productive the conversation would be when you would ban a moment yeah. in prison. Like imagine the, you know, banning the, the, the word agile. Yeah. In certain conversations. Sometimes I'd love to do productive? that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't you, because the, the, these, these moment prisons become masks for uh, a problem that's still undefined and not diagnosed. And yeah, they're sort of victims of work. their, yeah, they're victims of their own success. I, I sort of see it as a low fidelity, high fidelity. We, we see these terms that get grabbed onto because they're very low fidelity. And by that, I sort of think of it like in the McLuhan is, term which is you get to shape them right like anyone that hears them gets to shape them they're not specific you know they're they're just they're they're so low fidelity that they can be to the listener whatever they want to make it and so all of a sudden that like increases its popularity and people grab onto it because 10 different people hear it and then formulate their own meaning to serve their own purposes right and they're like that's perfect I'll, i'll I'll, you know, I'll recreate, I'll define this to suit myself. Um, and so it takes off as a concept. And then all of a sudden we have, you know, naturally what comes next with low fidelity ideas, everybody wants to define them and create fidelity. They're like, wait, wait, what are we talking, like, what does this mean? We, we're, we're using a word, but it means different things to different people. So now we need to officially define it. So then we go about arguing about what the definition is turning a low fidelity term into a high fidelity term. And as your point, now we've created a moment. Now we've defined it in, and, we, and it's static in time. And now all those people that defended it have to like maintain it, even though its meaning now is changing. They have to now defend this because they argued so hard for this high fidelity term. And we go, well, low fidelity terms have value. They, they're great at organizing people. They're great at at creating movements, but then to your point, they get in their own way, which is interesting. So now we have like prompt well, engineering and, and you know, oh, AI yeah. and- Beware uh, the term that has its own conference, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, we have so many of those terms in AI, you know, AI itself, you know, anthropomorphism, like, oh God, we're, we're we got a lot of moment prisons coming. You know, a lot of people arguing about definition of, of low fidelity terms. Well, I love the way you put it and uh, the framing around fidelity, but I, I think it, 
I mean, listen, it, we're human beings and uh, we try to make sense of things. It's a complicated world. Uh-huh. There's more and more change all the time. And so when we have that moment of clarity, it, it, it's, it's almost uh, addictive. And uh-huh. Listen, I'm very much associated with information architecture and I'm very happy about that. I'm really glad to have been part of the growth of IA. Um, I remember uh, at some point in the late 90s taking a trip to San Francisco not long after the Polar Bear book had, had come out. And I, I was, I forget what company I visited, maybe it was HP, somewhere like that. And some designer met me and she like just dropped everything, came over to me and hugged me. And she said, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I, now I know what it is I do. And you've made <laughs> things so much easier for me. You legit, going, I, I've had that kind of thing happen. And so for me, it's like, wow, I really love being associated with that. that that's a really good feeling. But, it's, but I've had to let it go. I've had to let it go because I think it, you know, for the reasons we've been talking about, you have to be able to walk away to the next thing. You have to be able to acknowledge that we're, we are living in moments in time and the moment of the moment, <laughs> this moment is one thing. The next moment is another. They may come days, weeks, months, years apart, but you have to be able to move between them. You have no choice. And uh, I, I think it's getting harder and harder to do this, but we have to do it. Yeah, we've, yeah, we've spent a lot of time with all on this. AI people. Yeah, we, we've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about sort of the fear of failure becoming a major stumbling block, not just to organizations that are trying to work with AI, but also individuals. And this this feels tied to that, right? Like there's something about couching yourself, a safety net of like, well, I'm I'm an information architect. I can always be an information architect. There will always be a need for information architecture, which is true to a point, but as more and more things start converging, then yeah. do you do yourself more of a service by by blending, moving out into other pools of thought and of action. Yeah, or or I can always be an information architect as long as we don't define it define it too specifically. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I used to. Um, I found it was very liberating uh, once I'd been doing IA for about fifteen years to uh, to stop talking using that term. I mean, I didn't ban it necessarily, but it just like I I stopped thinking about IA as a solution and I started going back to thinking about problems that I could help solve using things like IA and other things as well. And that's how a practice like IA or any other would ma- remain fresh. <laughs> so imagine, you know, the standard uh, 1999 definition of IA doesn't really address AI. Yeah. And if you're practicing IA today and you're not thinking about AI, right? kind of a problem. And your, your practice is pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think it's it's a good moment to go back and remember that initial moment as there was a need there was a need for a movement, a term. Uh we wanted people to care about the user interface. Um we wanted to take it more seriously design uh of these interfaces. I think it's it, you know, it's it's never seen the importance um at least the 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 emphasis that should be put on it uh, fully realized, you know, I think you know we keep giving so much credit to to technology as a whole and and so little to the front end. Just knowing chat GPT took off because of the chat interface, not the back end was there the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's just funny how we 
we overemphasize the front end in some respects and then and then forget about it in others and get it all mixed up. And now we have conversation as an interface just just to make it that much more confusing <laughs> um, and to make designing that much more complex and just to shake the ground underneath anyone who thought they finally could label themselves and define what they do. Uh, now that schools are teaching it and they're like, okay, I'm, I, you know, I've, I've been made legitimate and, and now we're going to shake it all up again because, because information architecture is about high bandwidth communication of, of knowledge or of, of data. And, and now we talk about conversation, which is, it isn't the, the highest bandwidth, uh, way to communicate lots of data. And so now we're going to mix the two. Now we're going to have conversations mixed with graphical elements and graphical user interfaces um, going back and forth and back and forth, which just, you know, means visual designers working with, you know, potentially linguists or people who care about language and having to work in an intertwined way, you know, where it's, it's you know, they, they're sort of, you know, a dance now. It's like a tango they have to do together, you know? Well, Rob, um, I love the way you put this, that uh, language is, you know, you're, the, the, you're framing it in terms of bandwidth or density. Okay. I would, my immediate reaction to that when you were saying that is, no, no, language is really quite dense because it it has like unbelievable semantic nuance, but it also has context. Language has, is very dependent on context as well as it creates context. And but then you know, in the context, if you're thinking about it in terms of AI and and the, the sort of disintermediated interfaces and so forth that we're all working on, working with increasingly, it's often very contextless. Uh -huh. so isn't that always the problem in AI that it you know the context or the domain is hard to to fold into whatever problem you're addressing. You don't necessarily, AI doesn't necessarily know that I'm sitting in my kitchen in Brooklyn or in your office in Denver and what that means, mm -hmm. who you're with and who you are. Uh, so uh, interesting point like about density and bandwidth. And uh, I like to think that IA is a, a, a means for introducing context to those settings. Yeah. That's a good way to actually frame it to say, you know, a conversation with context is so much more useful than trying to glean context purely from the conversation and the words itself. You right. know, and I I've you know, I've said it a number of times, the next big breakthrough on understanding isn't gonna come from from understanding the words better. Um LLMs doing better predictability is going to come from better context. Without context, there's only so far any system can go um, in terms of understanding because, you know, because as humans, our prediction machines rely so much on context. Uh, right. And and yeah, what what is information architecture in a world where you're not necessarily visualizing or directly communicating to a to the end user, but you're actually communicating data to the LLM or the AI agent so that it 
can effectively communicate to the end user? And what does information architecture to an LLM look like differently from a human in the sense that we don't need all these graphical, you know, sweeteners and, mm -hmm. and, and visual cues. We don't have a left to right, you know, kind of idea with eye movement and, and fonts. Um, now we're saying, you know, what is the right context to give the LLM so that it can deliver, you know, a good response or, or effective generation of text and how much is too much and how much is too little. And it's just a, it's a, it's different, but then it's the same. Well, you know, I, I also think it's not like this idea of context is not a, a binary, right? It's not, mm -hmm. it's, it's not that you either have it or you don't. I mean, you know, we already see this in in IA, uh, well, really in, in information in general, that there is a a uh, spectrum of semantic value. So, like we we see, for example, data has very little semantic value, but tables of data have more. Uh, text has semantic value, but structured text has far more, and conversation has even much more. And then when you fold in things like metadata, there's lots of varieties of metadata, uncontrolled, controlled, controlled semantic versus uh -huh. there, there's a whole bunch of, of spectra. And then you could take that even further. Um, I, I attended a talk a couple of weeks ago. We actually hosted it by uh, Dane DeSuter and Stephanie Scopilitis on gesture interpretation. Uh -huh. uh, you know, uh, where I mean, that's a that's a kind of interesting context or context aid that can be brought in where um, they're talking about how to read what you're doing right now, Rob with your uh -huh. chin or Josh with the tilt of your head or what I might be doing with my eyebrows, our hand gestures, broader uh -huh. body language. Those are things that can certainly add a lot of contextual or even potentially semantic meaning that AI is probably going to be able to work with if it's not already. Yeah, it's pretty wild to yeah. think about all the unstructured data too that opens up with LLMs, you know, being able to to parse that as well. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, we had a we had a conversation with uh, Dr. Jim Weber from Neo4j, he's the chief scientist there, and kind of it, it sort of dawned on us in that conversation that LLMs and something like GraphDB are just almost made for each other in that sense, in terms of, of providing context and, and treating data more on a relationship basis um, than putting it in yeah. static spots. Yeah, one of the things I was thinking, you know, I, I can't, uh, it's, it's still sort of infant thought in terms of what our information architecture is to an LLM. You know, we always think it's, its goal is to communicate not just data, but in the context of helping humans make better decisions. I mean, usually that's that's ultimately the the net result. It's not to just communicate the data for the sake of communicating the data. It's it's really to facilitate a human um, making a better decision and a more data driven decision. And that's like a noble, you know, that's a noble effort. Um, but now we're talking about helping LLMs make data-driven decisions and better decisions mm -hmm. on what to say and and un understanding that they they think differently so to speak um and 
And so now we're, you know, empathy, right? It's like this weird empathy challenge of, okay, pretend you're an LLM. Now, how would you best consume this information? Um, An example of this is recently I've been doing some testing, realizing that when I'm trying to communicate, you know, pattern-based data like tables to an LLM so that it can, you know, provide, use that as context, right? To answer questions or whatever, that if I use Markdown to communicate the data elements versus just commas, right? And paragraphs, Mm -hmm. it works substantially better at understanding what data is associated with what labels and then does a much better job at in natural language communicating. And I'm like, okay, um, that's not that different from people, right? Because we, we'd rather see it in a table than a paragraph. So that's like, okay, that's a, that's a given. We can, we can assume, um, that, but I, I think most people would be surprised that it's also true for LLMs that they'd rather see it in a table formatted than actually in a paragraph, comma delimited, uh, which is which is interesting. Where where these differences are, we'll discover over time. But how this affects um, this indirect information architecture of telling an LLM what it needs to know to make better decisions on what to say to humans is just like. It's definitely turns it more into an art than it than it was already. Or if it's not an art, it it is. There's a lot more intuition than a lot of scientists right. might want to admit. But what you're making me think of is like this. I never really thought of it this way, but this fundamental crossroads in everything that's <laughs> happened in technology. Uh, in the last 25 years or 30 years really came when, you know, when the web took off, it, no, I, I mean, I probably get my history wrong, but my understanding is HTML is a very easy to use, simp- oversimplified, depending on how you see it, subset of SGML, Structured Generalized Markup Language. And, you know, SGML was around for a few years and Mark, or Tim Berners-Lee you know, created HTML and pissed off a lot of the SGML people because he kind of, not only did he simplify it, which was great, that's why we could start creating web pages very quickly, and we did, but he also started munging together uh, presentation and logic. And so the semantics of, you know, emphasis versus italic, right? <laughs> you know, that kind of level of, of simplification was good for jump-starting the web, but bad for us today. Uh-huh. Right? Like, you know, the, it, it, it kind of screwed a lot of IA work uh, up badly because we have to then go back and try to reintroduce the logic or the structure back into all this information uh-huh. we've been creating, uh, at, you know, sort of uh, post hoc, but we're, we're now we also have to do, like, we have to get AI to do the same thing. I mean, mm-hmm. AI is depending on the structure to be there right? or it has to figure it out. It's a lot of work. So Tim Berners-Lee uh, giveth and Tim Berners-Lee taketh away <laughs> years later. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can't help but wonder, and I, I'm curious what you think about this, you know, you know, the, 
again, like moment prison prompt engineering, right? Like, okay, we can, we can already predict that to be on your list of, um, of, of, you know, things that, that we locked in time and defined too early. Um, and, uh, but, but, you know, is it coding or is it information architecture? Um, you know, cause coding's yes. so deterministic, right? <laughs> and information architecture is, is this like directing somebody towards a conclusion in a sense, or at least giving them data so they can, they can come to their own conclusions. Um, so it's, it's, it, it's, it, it's, it's on the spectrum, right? It's on the spectrum. I mean, coding and, and IA are, you know, IA is coding of a form. It's just, you know, it, it just, is, it marches maybe a little higher up to the, uh, non-deterministic right. information, right? It, 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 it accounts for more than data. It, it does is. actually work better or is designed to work better with, with, uh, uh, to, to create more structured information and that, that has value. I, I just don't know if it's an either or right we've had we've had a number of conversations about how natural language you know might kind of usurp a lot of coding languages once more machines can just speak in natural human language to one another is it how does that kind of um mess with this idea of of uh of like how we organize language how we organize data um how do you see that factoring in well, uh, you know, at, at a certain level, there has to be some definition of or, uh, of the space of the domain. Uh, in this case, of creating code through natural language, right? Like there, uh -huh. there has to be an ontology of here. Here are the tools. Here are the objects. To me, that's basically uh, an IA exercise. Okay. So, at a fundamental level, the domain has to be sort of mapped out for that work to happen. You have to say uh, to, you know, whoever, well, whoever's creating that code that who's ever, you know, designing the AI there that they're, or they're doing it, but there are certain objects, there are certain relationships, there are certain uh, protocols and certain processes, and they have to be named somehow so that they, they can be worked with. Um, but you might, maybe your, your point is more at a, like, less on the input level, more on the output level. Right, like, what is the the outcome of that look like? Does does the way we, did, or let me actually let me ask you to well, yeah. maybe re ask well, yeah, that question. Well, yeah, because you're you're talking about things that I hadn't even thought about, like that uh, how much intent is kind of built into certain aspects of coding language, and you can't just like scrub that away just because, like, the emphasis thing means like em means something in one context. You don't want to lose that. A bit of knowledge in another context, right? So, so even mm -hmm. though it can speak natural language, it needs to almost have coding language knowledge in a, in a sense, right? Like it needs to understand why certain things exist and what what certain markups mean and things like that. Which maybe it it's already interesting. Does. It's <laughs> to so a it's degree. almost like <laughs> it's like we're sort of ping ponging back and forth between trying to create code that is based on not just natural language, but the natural world. Uh -huh. And then going back in the other direction, right? Yeah. I mean, it's all translation, but like the nature of that translation is changing quite a bit. And maybe, you know, if you were going to start a programming language from scratch today, would you 
could it just totally be natural language? Would there be a need for any code under the hood? I don't know. I don't well, know enough I, about programming. Yeah, I go, I go to no because it's not like many, many programmers haven't attempted to come up with a language, a coding language that were that was natural language. And and when you get to why we don't have that, it's because of the specificity necessary. Um, the la our language isn't specific enough and detailed enough, and so you know what ends what would end up happening is just like the English language is not static, you know. Mm -hmm. So we could of course extend it, and that's probably what will happen is if we start to extend language to include terms that are more specific when talking to machines so that we can create that specificity in natural language. So in a way you have like this pidgin language of code and English starting to merge together into one language so that we can talk to mis machines in more specific ways. Um, because uh, otherwise the machine's going to have to disambiguate continuously as you're trying to get something done. And, and, and that's annoying. At some point you're like, all right, screw this. That's not efficient. You're, you're asking me a million questions. Um, to f well, I'm sorry to interrupt though. I mean, like maybe this is another situation where you have to pay attention more to context, right? Like, so could a natural language approach to coding be much more effective if it was designed for a specific domain like um, like uh, mapping out uh, an office layout yes versus uh, d designing a new protein mm -hmm. yeah I think the challenge you have there is that at some point it's it's gonna have to boil down into something that's that's readably specific right and and could it could it understand and properly predict what you meant with mm -hmm. context? I totally think that's coming. And we'll have ephemeral applications that just construct themselves and deconstruct just for one-time use. Um, the code never goes into repository, never gets, it just, it runs, it executes, it's gone. Um, so I do think that that is coming, but it still has to manifest in some specific language for the machine to know exactly what you want it to do. Even if that's an interpretive layer, that's that context has to sit in the middle. And then and then that confirmation, is this what you meant? Now you have to be able to read it as the originator of it to confirm mm -hmm. that it got it right. And and so now you're you're gonna have to understand the code enough to second guess it, otherwise you're trusting the machine far too much. Um, you know, we we lose the whole testing, deploying, and all of that, and all of that stuff. So, uh, I, it's it's a it's a it's a really good question. Can we go far? Yeah. Can we speed things up? Yeah. Are we going to have a a new language that emerges? I think it's going to be this combination of coding and UI components because graphs still matter. You know. Bar charts still matter and are still great ways to communicate quickly. So we're going to have this interplay of graphical elements and 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 specific code-like language and um, 
and we're going to talk to machines in this, you know, this way that doesn't, you know, isn't that far from how, you know, two teenagers talk to each other now with acronyms that we don't even understand. I don't understand half the time <laughs> um, to get efficiency. But yeah, I think I think we're going to just watch an evolution of the English language or the languages in general, not just English, of course, um, <laughs> in a in a radical way. Um, where the the grammar police are just going to like lose their minds. Well, I mean, you know, we we already have been using uh, metaphors from computing to talk about the mind for for decades, right? Uh-huh. Um, you know, my memory processing isn't very good. Actually, there's better examples of that, but um, yeah, and I think the language is going to just completely change, and uh, as it should, that's what it's there for. Right, it's supposed to change, right? Um, what I I like as a as so I my main job is a, is a publisher of books and a producer of conferences, and and for the former, I'm really interested in how AI might impact the kind of collaboration and iteration that I think producing a book, especially a book, uh-huh. really requires. Um, you know, we try to do things a little differently than a lot of publishers in terms of taking an uh, like unusually high level of collaborative and iterative tools and and resources and editorial support to work with our authors. Uh, and we I always say if you are the kind of person who wants to just go sit in your garret for a year and write a book and then come back and present us with a manuscript you should find a different publisher because we haven't, we don't know that manuscript. We haven't worked with you <laughs> on that manuscript. Now I'm starting to wonder, um, maybe you're the kind of person who wants to be in that garret, not because you don't want to collaborate and iterate, but because you don't want to do so with humans. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that personal assistant that's AI based can really help you a lot. And that other AI-based tool that summarizes your ideas and spits out crappy straw men, still pretty useful. Uh-huh. And you could say, no, that's not what I meant. Let me let me rewrite that. I mean, I, I had this experience recently where um, you know, we do all these conferences and each conference has to be promoted with endless emails. And I've been doing this for you know dozens of these. And I had to write yet another, you know, four line paragraph introducing Conference X. And I was just, you know what? I'm just going to ask Chet GPT to do it for me because <laughs> it's just throwaway copy. No right. It's really going to read it too closely. It's only going to get used once. And I had to generate a couple of versions. And uh, I, I picked one and I rewrote it. And it probably was five minutes, 10 minutes rather than 45 minutes. That was useful. Um, I, uh, I wonder if we can step that up a bit on the book writing. Like, I don't want a book written by a tool. No. Yeah, I don't want. I mean, as far as I know, I haven't published any yet. <laughs> but, yeah, um, uh, I do think there is a lot of power there. Yeah, in terms of yeah. helping authors. We we had what, a conversation what? with uh, with Charlene Lee, who's the best selling author, and and. And I had been thinking about this too as someone who's been writing for like 25 years. Like, 
what if I just had an LLM that I fed it everything I've ever written, all the podcasts I've recorded. And and she was, I think she's actually maybe in the process of doing something similar now, but yeah. her thought was that it's like a second brain. Like if I, if someone asked me mm-hmm. a question about, you know, a business's relationship to failure in the hospital setting, like I haven't specifically written about those two things, but if I've trained this LLM well, I can ask it what I might say, and then I can get mm-hmm. that response. Yeah. And then I, I feel like if you pull at that thread long enough, even the idea of a book becomes interesting because yeah. especially writing books about technology, right? Like we're working on the second edition of our book and it's we're having too much of a field day because because we wrote our book before ChatGPT changed everything. So now we're like, <laughs> how do we go back and take opportunities to do this? And um but if 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 uh, a book is the book the yeah, right thing be- going forward, like if an author has a trained LLM do they write a new book that is a static thing or do they have a subscription to that they can offer yeah. people that you can ask me questions and I will, yeah. uh, with my AI, right. I well, will. One of the things I can't help but think about is that let's just use book. It doesn't matter whatever you've written. Let's just use a book. How many, if we could count, how many conversations had to happen for that book to be written? How many, like, you know, 375 pay, whatever it is, how many conversations had to take place? Is there a book that was worth reading that no conversations happened? Like zero. It required no conversation whatsoever for that book to be written. And isn't just a book a synthesis of all of those conversations? It's not, it's not the, it's, it's, it's it's not the birth of the idea. The birth of the idea was the in the conversations that happened before it. The book that. is just the synthesis of of what it is. And whether an LLM sums up those conversations or not, we can't have a synthesis of conversations that didn't happen. Hmm. That is so beautifully put. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and I, I, you know, like I'm always telling our authors, like, listen, you, you have to have some expertise, but it's as important that you're able to facilitate a conversation over time with many people in different ways, whether they are quoted or do sidebars in the book or gave you feedback via survey or whatever Mm -hmm. it might be. Uh, And I mean, that's not only valuable in terms of content development, you have to do that, especially in a new space. We're not talking about fiction, obviously. You, you also, you know, it's like you, you, you get stakeholders in your work that way. And, and I always think that, you know, the books that succeed are the ones where the author and the publisher collaborated on, on building engagement and getting stakeholders while the book was being written. So that when it comes out, it's got a lot of wind behind its sails. Um, but I, you know, um, I think there, there, so like AI in that context can still be a really good tool for a couple things. One is helping generate the crappy manuscript because that's like, you know, the big hurdle, as you know, you got to get the manuscript done. And if you can, you know, anything to get you to that milestone as an author is huge. (laughs) The other thing is managing those conversations (laughs) over time, right? So. One of the big problems I think in writing is it's a double-edged sword. It's a gift in that you don't often get an opportunity to go so deeply into an idea you care about with hopefully a decent amount of support 
but more importantly, a lot of time, whether you're taking a year or whatever, that's unusual these days. But the negative is that you lose track because you probably have a day job and you have a life and you're trying to like bite off this huge idea over time and let it germinate and, and, and develop over time. And it becomes an information management nightmare. I, I remember working on a book, right? I, I spent like months working on one chapter, the hardest chapter. And I was such an idiot because I finally wrote it. And then a month or so later, I realized that I had written it already a year earlier. <laughs> and I'm an IA guy, right? I'm supposed to know how to na manage information. But it's stuff like that that I think AI is going to help with. I mean, there's, there are a lot of new tools like, you know, Scrivener is a pretty good tool to help authors in that context. And I think we are just that yeah. kind of... It's, just scratching the surface there in terms of organizing really great yeah. ideas. I just want to say one more thing about books, though. Um, will we still need books? Um, yeah, I mean, like, I I'm already thinking about, like, can we have an LLM made up of our books? And by extension, all the <laughs> smart things our authors have, have come up with. That said, there is always, I think, going to be value in a book as an object because it's got boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> we don't always want access to the web of all knowledge and it, all of its distractions and rabbit holes. <laughs> I do think there is something to be said for a linear contained experience of acquiring knowledge no. or being introduced to ideas. Yeah, I, I don't think it's, it's going away. Yeah, I think reference books aside, this is storytelling and storytelling means linear. Mm -hmm. And I, we've we've done this. We've loaded specific books into LLM, trained it to see what happened. And of course, it's as you would imagine, you put it in front of somebody and they're like, I don't know what to ask. <laughs> I don't even know what it's about. I don't even know the boundaries of what to ask. Tell me, tell me a good idea. <laughs> you know, inspire me. What do you say? It's it's useless because you're sitting by the campfire and you're like, tell me a story, and they're like, okay, ask me a question. What? <laughs> uh, like, right. uh, tell me a story, and and what is that story Context. about? Context. Yeah, Context. that story is about the synthesis of of many conversations and experiences that's been curated. So I I love specific use cases. When we talk generals, I think people tend to get lost. But when we talk specifically, if I was an author writing a biography, I would interview the person and have countless tapes of conversations uh -huh. with that person, right? And it wouldn't be a one way. Like I would, the, the questions I would ask, I would elicit certain things. I would try to find the story, find the interest. Then I would have like hours and hours and hours of conversations, right? Um, knowing that the conversations I had were also built on conversations with other people about this person and what they thought was interesting. And then I have to curate this down into what I think matters, shorten it, and then make it linear and build it into a story. And yes, finally, finally, at the very end, I got to put it on paper into a book for a public, like whatever, <laughs> you know, that yeah. is the like to focus as that being like the key to writing a book, the, the moment where you synthesized all the data, you know what matters, you've, you've had all the conversations and now you just have to write it down. And we think that's that all. that's going to replace <laughs> book writing, you know, <laughs> like that is not writing a book, just, just, you know, 
removing the conversations. Those didn't happen. LLMs aren't going to do that. They're not going right. to synthesize the stories that are most interesting um, in a way that's highly compelling. And and then yeah, writing, putting it all well, together in a in a in a in a way that's understandable. Is... Synthesis is really hard and 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 underappreciated. But I mean, to your point about conversation, and I, I totally agree. I mean, I'm always telling our authors, at least, that a, a, a book is a polished snapshot of an ongoing conversation that you're going to facilitate. Um, but um, what behind conversation lies relationships, right? So mm -hmm. who do you have a conversation with? Uh -huh. Where do you find them? That's really, really hard. So um, I was playing with ChatGPT uh, a few months ago when I was actually working on programming one of our conferences. I figured, what the hell, you know, I'm interested in knowing who out there knows about knowledge management as a field. And that's something I used to spend a lot of time with, but haven't in, in decades. And so I asked, like, who's a real, you know, who's an expert in knowledge management? And it gave me some interesting ideas. It also spit out a few things that were real head scratchers. Like, you know, you know who ChatGPT says is one of the foremost experts in knowledge management, Mike Dukakis. That's just, eh. <laughs> Mike Dukakis. Okay. I don't think that's true. Uh, it doesn't mention that he was a presidential candidate in the bio it pulled together for him. It did mention he'd been governor of Massachusetts. For those of you who don't know Mike Dukakis is he was the Democratic candidate for president in 1980, oh my God, 92, right? Uh, I think, wasn't he kind of sunk too by like a viral photo of him in a tank with a- In a tank. Yeah. Yeah, he's a little guy in a big tank. Yeah, and yeah. He, he, and he, uh, and Willie Horton, they released from prison. And he ran against, he lost the election to uh, George Bush in, oh wait, no, it was 80, um, I can't, oh God, now I'm really embarrassed because I thought I was smart about this stuff. But- Mike Dukakis is not a, an expert in knowledge management. He, he happened to be on a board of uh, an organization that had knowledge in its title. That's a, it, it proved itself to me pretty quickly to be a pretty crappy way to forge relationships that I didn't have yet. I'd <laughs> be much better off talking to people who knew a little bit about knowledge management. It didn't really help me there. It's not going to be Maybe my point is it's not necessarily going to be a good relationship engine. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't have that, you don't have the conversations. You have to do it yourself. When you think about books too, I think there's sort of this romantic notion, probably more with fiction writing of the the author kind of like punishing themselves in a room to to put out their work. You know? Garrett, a Garrett. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but the process that you describe with your books, and it certainly holds true with the process of writing the book with Rob is it was like so many conversations and so much uh -huh. talking through ideas and what's going to make it in and what's not going to make it in. And so a book really is important because it's an abstract representation of, of a level of agreement and passion and interest. Like it's not, it's not just this thing that sits on a table. Like it, not that everyone needs to know all that going into a book, but I think that combined with when I mean, we were talking about storytelling, I feel like it becomes clear every day to me that we have almost this biological obsession with story because we, we even just retell the same stories, you know, with different masks on the characters over and over again. So I, I don't think that'll go away. And I think yeah. that's a good thing. And I think 
it's cool to think about like the the weight of a book. <laughs> well, uh, uh, literally, yeah, mm-hmm. the weight, the the dimension, the size. I mean, the, the other thing that we we tend to forget about with products like books is that there's a forcing function of of how long you can actually spend on it, both as a writer as well as a reader. And how long, by extension, is the book? So one of the things I'm always doing with with people writing book proposals is I say, try this exercise uh, where you have a budget. You're going to write 250 pages because people don't really want to read 500 pages, or well, whatever it is. How are you? What are you going to budget that that those your your 250 pages in terms of your ideas, in terms of the conversations you're having, in terms of the narrative arc? How is that going to play out? It is literally a budget. So, um, you know, if you are just, you know, screwing around on the web, there's no forcing function. A book has that forcing function built in, partly for economic or business reasons. Yeah. I always think of like conversations as like dances. Someone leads, someone follows. It can switch, you know, throughout the conversation. Um, and and that's kind of ultimately where we ended up with when we had like, you know, ingested these books and then put people in front of it and watched them just sit there with a blank look on their face. Like, what's the meaning of life? Like, I, <laughs> has nothing to do with anything on any pages that we had written. Um, we realized that it needed to start a conversation that was in context. It needed to start asking about how much do you know about AI? How interested in are, are how interested in this subject are you? And and then it had to kind of guide and lead through the conversation. We had to lead the LLM to lead them through a conversation. And that can get interesting from a you know, now the content's being somewhat tailored to the audience. And so where books are kind of one size fits all, you have this opportunity now to kind of create a a a more hyper personalized uh storytelling experience it's still going to be in buckets like you're still going to have to you know create some level of personas and things like that because as the storyteller you can't you can't imagine an unlimited audience of individuals but you could you could craft it for you know certain archetypes and 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 have them lead them down that road you know oh you're you're a 13 year old okay now i'm going to i'm going to lead you through this story um but it's still all doing the same thing in my mind it's still synthesizing all the conversations that led up to writing that book um it? it's just now synthesizing it in real time instead of us synthesizing it all um you know and and maybe we write the book for the llm now we we say okay we don't need to you know worry about all the fluff we just tell you this sequence of events the things we thought were important and, and maybe there's like a new kind of book that's formatted almost vectorized you know just for an llm to say i i wrote this book for an llm and so it's formatted and the ideas are compartmentalized in such a way that it can be e- easy like lego blocks easily you know built and configured for for different readers, sort of an interesting thought. You 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 should actually interview uh, Fred Zimmerman of Nimble Books because uh, I've known him for a zillion years. And uh, back in Ann Arbor, we were both in Ann Arbor years ago, and um, he has for years been 
um, publishing AI written books. Uh, you know, he, uh, just, uh, uh, he, you know, I, different topics. We're not in the same space, but it's interesting what he's doing. You know, that said, um, you know, we were talking about audience a moment ago, and I do think AI tools can certainly help contextualize content for an audience by doing things like, Hey, I want, I want this to be written at a sixth grade level. Uh-huh. Okay. I can see that. What I'm not so sure about is what it would do with the directive that I often give authors, which is make the reader the hero. Uh-huh. Can I, can AI do that? What do you guys think? I, you know, hit and miss just like, just like us, you know, I think sometimes yes, sometimes no, it's all about believability. Again, we have a capacity as humans to make ourselves the hero. It's more up is to it? the reader and their imagination and confidence to be the hero <laughs> in a lot of cases, you know. That, as, you, as you said. Patterns in storytelling, kind of, though. Yeah, Sorry, go ahead. make it low That's fidelity true. enough and they'll make themselves the hero. Too Are high fidelity and they won't. when possible. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, there's a few tricks, like you're saying, Josh, but um, yeah, I, I mean... You know, it's an interesting dance because you, with any kind of book or really any communication at all, there's the the nature of the content and does it lend itself to a certain voice and tone. There is the voice tone that will engage the readers best and the readers are diverse. And then there is the voice and tone that fits the personality of the author and, and the conversations that they facilitate. It's, it's interesting. It's yeah. very interesting. And it, it just makes you realize in, in so many ways, there are so many things that have to go right for a book to succeed. Yeah. There's a, Rob, Rob was actually raised under the tutelage of Marshall McLuhan, the Canadian philosopher. Mm-hmm. And we, we have this quote that no, we bounce no, around a lot. Oh, sorry. I wouldn't ahead, say under the tutelage. <laughs> I was 11 when he died. So, but I did play <laughs> in his yard and my mom meditated with his wife. <laughs> so better than tutelage. That counts. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, uh, we have this quote, I, I think I'm getting it right, Rob, that he, he said that basically with any new, with any book, 80% of the material needs to be familiar material. You can only, uh, yeah. only have about like 20% of new that, information. That was random. Yeah. That, no, that was uh, McGraw-Hill. He, when, when, when they, they published, published textbooks. Yeah. yeah. He, he didn't obviously. Right, right. Follow that. Yeah. Um, but I was just wondering if, if that, I mean, I guess, does that hold up w- when we're talking about books that are specifically about like how to, how to do specific things working with technology, maybe that, that, that shifts, but also now we have this idea that we've been talking about, maybe you have a personalized, like maybe you could say, I just want the 20% of this book that's new. <laughs> Can you mm-hmm. give me that? Because I, I think I'm pretty well versed on the 80%. Like there could be that level of personalization as well. Yeah. yeah that's interesting. Um, Certainly for things that are highly technical. Uh, I mean, if like for what we do, which is not really technical, I don't know that that would work. Um, most of the change in our books comes from uh, not only experience that authors have that other people just don't have. It's not new, but it's just, it may be new to a specific reader, but it's also the synthesis. Yeah, exactly. Of, you know, I mean, UX is all about synthesis of different practices and methods yeah. and tools from all kinds of different areas. And when you put things together in new ways, you do get new things. It's still putting together stuff that exists already. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, when it's, you think of those specifics, point, like Mar- just go back to McLuhan, his book Media is the Massage, right? It was a misspelling. Um, that, but then, but then he was like, "Well, it's an interesting misspelling because mass age and his global village." And mm-hmm. he's like, "I think I'll stick with it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick with that, that is misspelling. That right? Yeah, so that's correct." And he's like, "Massage, okay, yeah, media is the massage. It still works. Mass age, oh, that's that really works. So they just left it in. Um, it, it was not, it was not deterministic. <laughs> Love it. It was, it was very much a accident. Um, and then a lot of curation, to discussion, and conversation." about whether to leave it in or take it out um, had to ensue. And then then they decided to leave it in, which was pretty brave. If you if you think about being so academic, you know, like mm-hmm. I guess he was just smart enough to know that no one would assume he made a spelling mistake on the title of the page. But I like the idea of media massaging the brains, too, because it seems to have that ability. Like to it, although it seems to be more like uh Stompage. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a very heavy masseuse hand. It's yes, like, yeah. More like yeah, rolfing. Yeah. It rolfs your brain, I suppose. Rolfs yeah. your brain. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it does it does lead to storytelling. Like they built a story behind that misspelling and suddenly sold it as as a feature, not a defect. And you're like, is that could could an LLM do that? Only realistically if it had been done before. You know, well, the LLM can certainly make mistakes. <laughs> That's been yeah. proven quite a bit, but um, uh, uh, yeah, that you know, yeah. I mean, I guess it's still up to us to say that's a good one, just like McLuhan did in yeah. that case. Well, yeah, and other me people of, um... to enjoy enjoy the backstory of the title. Like it's suddenly like ah, that's that endears him. It endears the book. It in, you know, mm-hmm. we're we're such nutcases for stories we just love them um yeah well it made me think of of seth godin too you you were asking him if like generative ai could create purple cows and and i think the what we settled on was that it could but it would take a human to recognize it right like right generative ai might the kick curation. back the media as the massage but it took a, a human to really like glom onto that and be like no wait that is the thing like weirdly <laughs> that is the thing that will set this book apart <laughs> Well, and actually, just to, to get back to what I think Brav was saying a minute ago, just like the story behind the title there was endearing, and I think that is another aspect of uh, a book's success is that the author doesn't necessarily have to be endearing, but I was just going to say, and it's kind of a loaded way to put it, that the author has to be human, uh, which is funny to say in this context, right? Right. But human in the sense of, a reader can identify with them. Yeah, relatable. And c- could you identify with the non-human author? Yeah. I think, I think in most cases, you know, only only under a deception, you know, only under deceptive pretense, where it's could it effectively deceive you into thinking it's a human? Yes. Yeah. Um, and therefore, yeah, it could fool you. But now you're talking about something that probably should be illegal which is you know deception of being a human the pro- the problem with the the positive use cases of that deception is that the negatives outweigh it you know it's it's sort of like impersonating a police officer 
police officer. <laughs> yeah, I know? was thinking the same thing. Yeah, it's it's like maybe there's a few use cases you could come up with where that's okay and that's a good thing, um, but the bad just far outweighs the good, and we should just absolutely as a thing kind of say that deception, um, impersonating a person should just be illegal. <laughs> um, well, and now we have this problem where you know. A lot of the, the the main AI players are are going to Washington and saying, "Regulate us, regulate us." Yeah, and it, it's it's okay. They're yeah, kind of I saying, mean, "Regulate I, us." I dare you. <laughs> but also, I it's dare like you a to try. Late. <laughs> it's a little late because, like the the like the points we're making right now about things like impersonating a human. This this is nothing that anyone hadn't thought of. 10, yeah, exactly. Years ago. It's I illegal mean, on the telephone know. already. Robocalls, like this is done. We've done this. Yeah, we've been here. <laughs> yeah, but now, now they want us to. to they want actually a really slow moving uh, organization to 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 come up with with the law here. I mean, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I, I, it's disingenuous. It's so yeah. It's loaded with. You know, what do you do? You know, it's. The, the public is scared that's fear is dangerous in you know when you have a mass number of people that are experiencing fear and they look to the government to parent them calm them down and the you know government doesn't know what to say <laughs> no. well there's not a, a day i don't think about stewart brand's pace layer model you guys uh, might be familiar with uh, it's it's basically if you envision you can look, you can Google it, but if you envision an onion like concentric rings like an onion, uh, what he talks about is in the core there are things that are like uh, like never changing like laws of physics uh-huh. laws of nature, and as you move progressively outside uh, out out to the outside, you're talking about things that are, are more likely to change, like uh, culture. Uh, and then like the, out, I think his, his most out, outer ring is fashion. And I, that, that model has been applied in a lot of other contexts to kind of bring home the fact or introduce the fact that in any domain or any context there are things that are slow moving or non-moving and things that are not. And obviously, the technology is an outer layer, right? It's constantly changing. And we need things that anchor society, anchor humanity, anchor the planet, if you will, to, to keep it safe, to maintain things while all this other stuff is changing on the outer layers. <laughs> so um, I wonder if they're like, what in an AI environment like we're entering what is the anchor is it government is it is it loss of nature is it something else i don't know i mean but there, there needs to be some thought into what should be stabilizing rather than a knee jerk we're going to go to washington and ask for regulation yeah. after the fact it's uh, and the optimist in me wants to say that you know this idea of simulating a human being which we're obviously very enamored with um, uh, what's great about it being in the space, what's great about it watching other people connect with it is that it forces us to really be introspective and understand 
what a human being is, what they think, how they think, um, in a in a way that's not loaded because we're trying to simulate it. So so understanding it correctly matters. Um, so we don't get to create fiction or make it what we want it to be because it's not going to work. And and that goes to all levels. Governments trying to understand it too as we're as we're understanding how to create humans and how not just one human, but what most interests me is like groups of humans, right? These are social organisms that act as one um, where each person is just a member of the larger singular organism, right? And how do groups behave? And how do groups of AIs, how should they behave? And we, by understanding all of this it and thinking about all of this, it starts to bring up all of the deficiencies in how we behave as humans, all the all the flaws and, and issues that we haven't dealt with. And so now we're sort of faced with dealing with some of these issues as human beings um, that we should have dealt with probably along the way. And, and it's sort of just bringing it and surfacing it. And we're like, okay, we're, we're, we're at, we're saying, Hey, it, you know, it's almost reminds me of those, like, uh, I, I, you know, I don't know anything about this, but the psychologists that use a puppet, you know, mm -hmm. for therapy, like, well, now the puppet's AI. So now, now, okay, that's effective. Like, talk to the puppet, tell the puppet how you feel. Um, and, and we kind of um, start to reveal, like, by that puppet, you know, and, and trying to make it, you know, behave and, and respond in the right ways that it needs to start understanding what we mean and what we feel, not what we say. And so this whole idea of like alignment is a great example. We, we study all the data and all the words in the world and we create an algorithm that predicts the next word, except where it doesn't agree with, it, where, it, where it doesn't agree with, with a large group of people and then we have to align it, right? And we have to say, okay, you know, this, this data, you know, may represent a lot of the language used on the internet, but we don't want that language to be propagated. So we're going to edit that back. We're going to weight that down, and we're going to, and we're going to ultimately reveal more of the language that we that we want to be on the internet. So we're going to create our <laughs> own reality inside this LLM. We're going to reshape the the opinions of humanity to be more what we think it ought to be, which then lots and lots of conversations go about what, what ought it, what should it be? What is truth? What is not truth? Who gets to decide what the truth is? And these are now conversations we're all having. Um, and it's, well, it's about time, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, absolutely. I think there's, uh, there's a, like maybe the most fundamental question, which is kind of something we've been addressing in this conversation, but it's it's really everywhere now, whether we realize it or not, is is what are humans good for? Now, what are humans good for? We we never really had to ask that before. And, you know, but we're all animated by it. We're all on our journey through life trying to figure out what we are as individuals are, are good for. And we're very unhappy when we don't have an answer to that question. And now we're being you know, uh, confronted as a, as a, as a species with that. Mm -hmm. Right. Like and we and never really had to deal with that as a whole species. Yeah. And I think you, you could say, 
though maybe for most of evolution we were fine maybe it's only recently that we're like so caught up on measuring ourselves by our productivity that we're suddenly mm -hmm. having identity crisis that some machine can dig faster than we can <laughs> you know like we already knew that you know we're just now we have to face the fact that measuring who you are as a human being is maybe more about your relationships and connections and your creativity than it is about your productivity and most of evolution it was probably that way you know you know on their on people's deathbed it's almost you know unanimously said that they don't track all of their productivity and say that's you know that's what i'm most proud of in my life it's usually the relationships or the creativity that happened so so if we're so caught up with productivity what if this just forces us to reshape and go back to the way we should be measuring ourselves which is the connectivity the relationships we have the creativity the things we created and co-created in our lives and that productivity is just a red herring um that kind of introduced itself in the industrial revolution days and you know the sort of you know serfdom well <laughs> It, it, I'm a hundred percent, and um, it does kind of go back to capitalism, and you know the, they'll focus on productivity, and suddenly that's being eaten away at. Well, not suddenly; it's been happening for yeah. a while. And uh, uh, the big problem is we all have to eat. Yeah. Although it's what, what, that's that getting solved. Work? That's getting solved. I mean, productivity. Let's just imagine a world where productivity is abundant, which. I think isn't hard to imagine because many of us live there today. <laughs> um, still, people are catching up, but you know we're all moving in the right direction. And so, if we look at, uh, if we just imagine and let ourselves imagine a world where productivity is abundant, then, then what? Like, let's let's well, that existential crisis. We should all face that. We should go. Okay, so let's imagine that we have more than we can eat. What should we do with our time? Run marathons? Check. Doing that. Uh, you know, paint? Yep. Check. <laughs> you know? I don't know. I mean, like, I'm with you to a degree, uh, and I hope we get to that point, but I would also argue that that point where there's so much productivity, there's so much wealth, we're there. It's just mm -hmm. not distributed. Uh -huh. Inequitable. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I don't know that that the hoarding by individuals or small groups uh, with fingers on the levers of policy, if that goes away, even if the world has uh, 10 times more wealth to spread around than it does today. Yeah, I, I think equity is the key, right? And it's, it's tough yeah. because you're looking at, you know, machines taking up productivity um, and, and, do, and being our productive agents. And now that affecting like worsening that that inequity potentially um and i think there's a lot there's a lot to look at it's it's hard to really say how that nets out in the short term in the long term in the medium term it's going to be very different i think when i look at somebody who is whose day is prioritized around productivity like clearly how much you know how many how many shovels of dirt did you dig? Um, how many, you know, strawberries did you pick? And and you let them live more of a creativity-based life. 
Um, I think they're going to be happier individuals. For those of us already fortunate enough to live a life that's more based on creativity and connectivity, you know, you know, we're we're going to have a different perspective on the threat. You know, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna worry for those people, right? On on one hand, the best of us, I guess, will, um, and and they worry for themselves, but. There, there certainly is an adjustment that says, but will their lives be better once they get to live the lives some of us live, right? Which is less productivity measured. Uh, well, and what kind of systemic change needs to happen to get to that point? And yeah. is capitalism going to get in the way of that? Seems likely. Probably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not quite as optimistic maybe as Rob is. I'd like to be. Um, the optimism that I feel that AI is going to bring us is maybe it's going to simplify things that are frustratingly complex. Like, will AI maybe help me file my tax return? Uh -huh. That wouldn't be such a bad thing. Will AI help me get my uh, medical bills paid? in a, in a fair way where I, I know for sure I'm not getting gouged or, um, will AI help me get a mortgage? You know, I, I, maybe these aren't great examples, but I do think the, the lives we live are really weighed down by the complexity that we have to deal with on a regular basis. Um, and you know, that kind of excites me because I don't think the complexity has gone away. We're not going to simplify the tax code anytime soon. We're not going to make it easier to wade through the Department of Motor Vehicles to renew your license, but maybe AI can help in some of those contexts. Yeah, I think it's systemically a in that regard. Yeah, exactly. I would agree with that. I'd say that you know tax laws were designed for humans, right? And much of it is to is to influence human behavior, right? To buy homes or you know to kind of it wouldn't be as complicated if human behavior wasn't a component. It could be simplified, mm -hmm. but it's it's designed to modify human behavior, and so you know the the government as a whole, us as a whole, will have to find alternative ways to influence people in the directions we want them to. If AI suddenly acts as an intermediary and a GPS to filing your taxes, where you don't know where you're going anymore, you don't know how to get there, you just let the AI handle it for you. Um, you know, it, it kind of removes a tool on how to incentivize certain behaviors in certain ways. And, mm -hmm. you know, they'll have to find other tools to say, oh, how do we, you know, encourage homeownership or, or entrepreneurship or all the things that are, you know, ultimately, um, designed to, to influence our behavior through, through the tax law. It, but on the other hand, to your point, it gets so complicated, it's not influencing us because we don't even, we didn't even know their tax benefits anymore. <laughs> There's, it's like that point where now it's gotten so complicated. So maybe it, maybe it just helps us learn more. We were on a podcast uh, with Lee Hood and we talked about, you know, having kind of an, uh, a concierge for your health. Um, and managing your healthcare. Mm -hmm. And we said, you know, we're more likely 
you know, interested in not just one, but two or more that would argue in front of us. Um, should you eat, should I eat this donut? And, and they have a fight um, and, and they kind of throw data points back and forth. And well, if he eats the donut, then he's got to run, you know, or walk 20 minutes and his, you know, well, yeah, but I mean, we, a good walk would be nice today. The weather's good, you know, <laughs> and then we ultimately make the decision, right? So now we feel mm-hmm. empowered. And Lee's point was, and we're educated. Like we just learned something through this, this entertaining, you know, conflict that happened between two AIs arguing about whether we should eat a donut or not. Um, I think that's, uh, it, 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 so could it argue about whether we should buy a house or not? And should, should we start our own company or not? Like, yeah. Right. I, I think that's a better view of it than than nanny AI where it's just taking care of my taxes for me and now I'm just oblivious to tax law or any or the consequences of 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 what I do because I'm just you know it's that GPS I get lost GPS battery dies I don't know where I am because I haven't been right. paying attention um well you know the AI are the AI uh, agents arguing with each other um they're just it, again, they're they're coming up with straw men, and mm-hmm. you know, in this case, you're just comparing the two straw men. But that's really, really valuable. And I'll just go back to not IA is the solution to everything, but IA that is ever present. You know, any kind of straw man is look, an argument is ultimately sits on top of a framework, mm-hmm. frames out some aspect of a domain, and. To do that consciously, I think you need, you know, some sense-making ability to develop some kind of ontology of that domain. And whether you use IA or you use something else, um, yeah, that's what's happening. And that kind of brings us full circle to where we started today. Exactly. Is it IA? Is it prompt engineering? Is it context? generators <laughs> contact architects well it feels like there's an intersection too between uh moment prisons and storytelling because i feel like moment prisons do represent an aspect of storytelling you're telling yourself a story about how your skill sets fit in with other people's skill sets and this important work that's being done and now i get to be a part of this forever and then i mean uh, i think lou you said you have a teenager in the house um i've watched a lot of the marvel movies um, with my mm-hmm. with my sons, and it's like those movies. This the whole empire started out really strong. It was all these very compelling stories, and each new movie was so exciting. And then they did kind of reach a point where it's like they're hitting the same notes, and it's it doesn't feel fresh anymore. And the story, the storytelling, is now uh, becoming less apparent. It's more just about like cataloging who's showing up at all these different movies, and we're losing that aspect. And I wonder if if that is like sort of a similar trajectory. Uh, to the to the moment prison. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, that's an entertainment. Obviously, it's it's a, it's a, a a world they've constructed, and maybe you're right. Whereas the the story that introduce the stories that introduce that world are sort of spent. And now, if I understand it, I'm not a big Marvel movie watcher, but I think what you're saying is the what what becomes the story is not here's a world, but here's like interesting common new combinations of, of people and trends in that world and Maybe arguments about what's can. The world build. <laughs> yeah <laughs> right right um uh but there's definitely like 
I'm sure there's some uh, uh, urge for people who are big fans to pin things down uh-huh. long enough that they can understand it. And that can smother the storytelling because, uh, moving forward because it may smother the evolution of right. that world. Yeah. And maybe you're right. So maybe in that regard, it, it is a moment present. It, it is a smothering of change. Yeah. Uh. Well, your cat's meowing, Josh. That usually means it's time to wrap it up. Oh, yeah. My cat My cat has announced himself here. Yes. The podcast. <laughs> oh, my cat's ignoring me, but uh, I'll, I'll go with what your cat has to say here. <laughs> this was great conversation. Uh, yeah. Really good. Loved it. Thank we you. Just kinda this is really fun. Delved all over the place. Um. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, thanks. Well, really you guys having you we're gonna we want to talk about AI. Uh, I don't really know anything about AI, so I, I'm glad to, to try to keep up with you for an hour and a half. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. that's great. It's been amazing. Thanks, Luke. Hey, thanks again for tuning in to Invisible Machines. Don't forget to follow Invisible Machines wherever you get your podcasts, so that you can hear new episodes as soon as they drop. You can also watch this podcast on the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. Thank you so much to everyone who listens to this podcast and especially to those of you who leave comments because we've received a lot of really useful commentary that has helped us shape this podcast as we move forward with it. Thank you as always to our producers, Elias Parker, Kate Timchenko, and our video editor, Michael Litvinov for making this podcast look and sound wonderful. We look forward to catching up with you again next week right here on Invisible Machines.